This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with the founder of United Therapeutics and Sirius XM, Martine Rothblatt. She shares the fascinating, heart-lifting journey to founding her medical company and the groundbreaking work that they are doing. But first, what's ahead? Joe Biden's tax hikes will hurt everyone. Joe Biden is proposing $4 trillion in higher taxes but claims that only the rich will end up paying for them. Don't buy it. The Democrat candidate for president also promises to repeal the Trump tax cuts, which did reduce the tax bill for a typical household by more than $1,000. But let's assume Biden doesn't take away those middle-class tax reductions. His plan will still damage most Americans. He ignores the fact that his onerous exactions will mean fewer jobs, depressed wages, less innovation, and a stagnant standard of living. For instance, he wants to boost the capital gains tax to over 40%, a level not seen since the 1970s when the economy stagnated and the stock market stank. A capital gains exaction at the level Biden proposes would send stocks downward. It punishes risk-taking. Why risk money when the rewards are heavily penalized? made worse when you factor in state capital gains taxes, and losses are absorbed totally by the investor. Democrats forget that over 100 million Americans have 401ks or IRAs. Millions of people, especially government workers, are in traditional pension plans whose assets are primarily invested in stocks. All will be hurt by a lousy stock market. Biden's desire to boost the tax on business profits by 33% will make the rate one of the worst among developed nations. That will curb the flow of job-creating capital that had been flowing into the U.S. before the COVID crisis. Far more damaging, the far higher level will leave less money to expand companies and less money to pay dividends, thereby injuring equities. And it'll also mean less money to raise employee wages. Biden's plan for far more taxes on higher personal incomes will be a disaster for smaller businesses, which are usually taxed at personal tax rates. This would deaden a huge part of the economy when it comes to job creation and innovation. His plan would also mean a smaller pool of savings for investing. A bigger economy is impossible without more investments. So Joe Biden can claim the direct tax bill of many people won't go up, but Their job prospects and their opportunities for better incomes will wither. And now, my interview with Martine Rothblatt. My special guest today is Dr. Martine Rothblatt. She's becoming a modern Thomas Edison. She's the founder and chairwoman and CEO of United Therapeutics, a biotech company that tackles rare and orphan diseases, starting with pulmonary arterial hypertension, extraordinary story of her and her daughter. Martine's work and those of her colleagues has literally saved tens of thousands of lives here. The company also has a goal to create 
an unlimited supply of transplantable human organs. Martine likes to say you go for the moonshot, but to do so, you got to start here on Earth. They have already made breakthroughs, which we'll discuss, with the lungs that were once rejected for use in other people. She's also developing pigs with genetically modified organs. If you want to impress people at a cocktail party, remember the word xenotransplantation. And you're going to hear more of that in the future. So the goal is extraordinary, where organs like kidneys, hearts, lungs will be no more uncommon getting those than having a knee or a hip replacement. So her mantra is turn scarcity into abundance. Very much free market. Before, though, she went into biotech. She was the creator of Sirius XM Radio. She had a huge role in Geostar. Also, she's now working on what you might call digital doppelgangers, where you can sort of recreate yourself. And uh, she also created the first electric helicopter. And she has started called the TerraSam Movement, combining technology with faith. She also created a Unisphere. She's a terrific piano player, half triathlon, advocate for transgender rights. I don't know what more you can do, but if there is something to do, she'll find the way to do it. Martine, thank you for joining us. And let's start at uh, sort of the beginning. Your UCLA found it utterly boring and uninteresting. And you heard that the Seychelles was this wonderful paradise and you were determined to get there. You found that wasn't a paradise, but you found a different kind of paradise. Walk us through why you dropped out of UCLA and what you saw in Seychelles that totally changed your life. Thanks so much for doing this podcast together, Steve. So when I left UCLA and went to the Seychelles, I had imagined it was a kind of a Eden free of pollution and all of the adverse effects of technology. And instead, uh, when I arrived there, it, it was no Eden. The people were quite impoverished and the, the level of human development was very, very low. However, at the top of the mountain, at the center of the main island of the Seychelles, an island called Mahe, uh, there was a NASA tracking station that NASA had installed as part of a global network of tracking stations to monitor spacecraft going to Jupiter and other planets. So I traveled up to that NASA tracking station, and as I entered the doors of it, I was it was like going into another universe. I went from a place of mud and flies to a place of, um, of perfectly clean, beautiful technology, blinking lights, glowing screens, and a wonderful NASA engineer who took the time to explain to me uh, what exactly it was that they were doing there, gave me about an hour-long lesson in the basics of uh, radio communications and electromagnetism, and sparked in me a, um, a abiding interest in launching my own satellites to unite the world through satellite communications. You compared satellites to uh, canoes in the days of old, a way of exploring a whole new world. Exactly. And uh, so you uh, immediately went back to UCLA, re-enrolled, took a leisurely uh, pace of uh, doing a law degree, an MBA. You also uh, later studied uh, astronomy at the University of Maryland. And uh, you, you, you did work too, uh, getting a PhD in, uh, in, in Britain. So uh, after you got uh, through uh, UCLA and uh, got all of this, including the MBA, where you learned the uh, extraordinary power of uh, present value and uh, what that could do in terms of raising money, Go through uh, how you went to NASA and then a law firm, and then uh, you struck out 
when everyone said your vision was wrong, but you'd done a thesis, I think, uh, senior thesis, sort of like Fred Smith did a thesis that was rejected at Yale as utterly uh, preposterous. You did one that was the basis of a revolution in satellites. Walk us through that. It's quite, quite, I think it's inspiration for young people. You can't plan these things. You're so right, Steve. We always have to be open to kind of like this serendipity that um, pops into our lives. So once I went back to UCLA, I learned everything that I could learn about satellite communications from an electrical engineering standpoint. From a legal standpoint, I learned that all the different locations in the geostationary orbit were allocated by governments and were subjects to international treaties. And then I also learned, as you mentioned, the uh, power of compounding interest and, and, the, and the beauty of being able to express a future revenue stream as a net present value and show people that if you invest now at a smaller valuation, you will have a uh, perhaps a smaller size of a pie, but it will be a much larger pie in the future and it will be a tremendous return on investment. I learned all those great skills, but before striking out on my own, I took advantage of um, an offer to work at the law firm of Covington and Burling, now Covington LLP in Washington, DC. At that time, the uh, largest law firm in the city. And they recruited me because of my knowledge in satellite communications. I was a little bit too naive to realize that they were representing the ground-based terrestrial broadcasters, the National Association of Broadcasters, and wanted me to use my knowledge to do everything I could to slow down the advent of satellite communications, which would be a competitive threat to the land-based broadcasters, much as Netflix and Prime today are um, competitors to NBC and CBS and, and ABC. So I did that for a year, but I felt I was kind of going against my own core beliefs and opening up a new frontier of space. So as you said, I uh, struck out on my own and I was able to quickly uh, gain NASA as a client and was able to have a contract from them to gain regulatory approval for new satellites that they were launching. Then I came up with uh, my own idea for using satellites to broadcast radio programming over the entire country. And uh, this would be a direct threat to AM and FM radio, because if you could just pay 10 bucks a month and get a unlimited number of radio stations from Sirius XM, you're gonna spend a lot less time listening to AM or FM uh, radio. You could do it anywhere in the country, which they thought was impossible. Right. So tell us the reaction of experts to uh, this idea Sounds simple, but it was profound in its implications. Absolutely, Steve. So the experts were very negative on this idea. They said it would not work. They said the uh, signals wouldn't go through the atmosphere. They said that if they did go through the atmosphere, they would be blocked by trees and buildings. And finally, they said if they were not blocked by trees and buildings, why would anybody pay for radio when they could get it for free on uh, AM and, and FM? And so they just gave a litany of, of, of negative reasons. They also thought that I would never gain approval from the Federal Communications Commission or FCC because they viewed the FCC as being in the pocket of the National Association of Broadcasters, which were the AM and FM land-based broadcasters. But Steve, my approach to uh, when people say something is impossible is I just drive a, an ax right between the letter M and P 
And I say, no, impossible means to me, I'm possible. And I'm going to figure out a way to slice this problem up into little pieces. So first, I did a land-based demonstration where I showed that at those frequencies, the signal would be able to go through the Earth's atmosphere. I then did a demonstration of the tallest building in Washington, D.C., and I, I put a pseudo-satellite on top of that and a, a radio receiver in my car. I invited the Federal Communications Commission engineers into my car, and I drove around and I proved to them that this signal at this frequency would really work. I then went out and found um, people in small towns who were upset that they only had one or two radio stations to listen to, and I got them to sign letters for me saying that they wanted to have a choice of lots of stations, classical, jazz, uh, big band radio, talk radio that people had in the big cities. So I flooded the FCC with hundreds of these letters of support from small towns across America, and the FCC proved they were not in the pocket of the NAB. Uh, they gave me the license. We uh, raised the money and launched the satellite. And today, 30 million people are subscribers to Sirius XM Radio. Just as an aside, tell us why you admire Arthur C. Clarke and his insight. Yes, Arthur C. Clarke, um, for those of you who may not know, was a, a leading science fiction writer of the 20th century. Uh, he was the person who wrote the screenplays for 2001, A Space Odyssey, for example, which some of you may have watched. He also was an electrical engineer and played an instrumental role during World War II in helping the British develop radar. And um, right at the end of World War II, he published an article where he said, if you put a satellite, which at that time, nobody even really knew what a satellite was, so he called it a radio repeater, instead of on a mountaintop, which is where they usually were put, but instead if you put one six Earth radii above the equator, so that's from the center of the Earth to the surface of the Earth, six times further than that, uh, one Earth radii is about 4,000 miles. So if you put it around 24,000 miles above the equator, that satellite will stay above the same portion of the Earth as it is put and will be able to serve as a reliable radio repeater over a whole third of the Earth's surface. And he wrote in this article that will allow one radio to provide reliable broadcasting or communications to a third of the world's surface. It was a revolutionary idea. Later in his life, Clark said he bemoaned the fact that he didn't patent this idea because he would have uh, been a billionaire, uh, you know, from all of the royalties from satellites that were later put in that geostationary orbit. But I'm one of his beneficiaries because my satellites were put in that geostationary orbit, and I always pay homage to Arthur C. Clarke. It also shows it's one thing to have an idea, another thing to uh, make it a reality. Edison understood that. So... Describe now, you had this great success, Sirius XM, everyone's familiar with it. As you say, 30 million people pay for it every month. Tell us how you got into biotechnology, totally different field. I remember somebody asked you in an interview once, said he was an engineer. How do you go from engineering to biotechnology? And you said you need to, and you read. Explain the extraordinary story of how you made this extraordinary transformation. Thank you, Steve. It was not a transformation by choice. I was perfectly happy at SiriusXM and perfectly happy in the world of satellite communications. I will say today, still, 
My first love is aerospace. It's the field that I love the best. But unfortunately, while I was at SiriusXM, our youngest daughter, we have four uh, children, uh, suddenly began getting completely out of breath when we would go on ski vacations and up to higher altitudes. After one um, ski trip to Colorado, Tayride, Colorado, she never regained her breath. Her lips turned blue. She was not able to even walk up the stairs to our front door. And of course, we began taking her to doctors to diagnose what was wrong. Um, at first, they thought that she had the flu, but weeks went by and she was only getting worse. Then they thought she might have asthma. Finally, uh, one of her doctors, Dr. Pamela Parker in Silver Spring, Maryland, told me that when she was in medical school, she learned about an ultra rare disease called pulmonary arterial hypertension. And she thought it was possible that our daughter's symptoms were like this rare disease and that I should go to the Children's National Medical Center in uh, Washington, D.C., and have her checked out by the cardiology department. So we went there. Uh, we met with the uh, head of uh, pediatric cardiology, Dr. Roger Ruckman. He took her into the cath lab where they put a catheter up through the femoral artery into the uh, heart and the lung and measure the pressures inside the arteries. And he told me that unfortunately, she had this rare disease, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, this is in plain language, the blood vessels between the heart and the lung and only those blood vessels clamp down and they let very little blood get pumped from the heart to the lungs. If the blood can't get pumped from the heart to the lungs, the blood can't get oxygenated. And if your blood can't be oxygenated, your lips are gonna turn blue, you're gonna have no energy and you're gonna collapse and faint and, and ultimately die. He told me that there was uh, no cure for this disease. There was no treatment approved for the disease. Only 3000 people in the whole US had the disease because the people who developed it died within two to three years. He had only himself, as the head of pediatric cardiology, had only three previous kids with the disease, and they all three died. <laughs> so, I mean, this was, Steve, the worst news that anybody could, could ever get. And if any of you have ever watched the movie uh, Lorenzo's Oil, where the protagonist of that movie hears the uh, diagnosis about his son, um, with this rare, horrible disease, and just goes rolling down the staircases um, in madness, you know, and at the sadness of the diagnosis, that's exactly how I felt. So um, she was going to, he said, we have to keep her in the hospital for several weeks to do more tests and to put a cardiac monitor on her to measure her um, arrhythmia all the time. So while we were there, I am like that kind of Edison mindset in that if there's a problem, I'm going to be a laser on how do I fix it? I'm going to be a dog on a bone, you know, trying to fix it. So they had a library at the Children's National Medical Center. Quick footnote, Steve, they invited me to give a, a grand rounds there last year. And I told them how much I appreciated their library. The president of the um, Children's National Medical Center was there and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, we don't have the library anymore. And I told him you made a big mistake <laughs> taking away that uh, library because Google is wonderful, uh, just like heating systems are wonderful, but they're no substitute for a nice, beautiful campfire or fireplace. And 
Google is wonderful. We wouldn't get rid of it, but it's no substitute for a library and on a wall of books. In any event, back to back to the main story. So I did research night after night after night, and I finally discovered a pathway that could get me to a medicine that could halt the progression of our daughter Genesis's illness. So I decided I had a new purpose in life. My previous purpose was to help um, humanity expand off the earth and into space. But my new purpose was to save my daughter's life. And I didn't care about anything else. I was going to, if I I didn't care about eating, I didn't care about anything. I was going to do whatever it took to save my daughter's life. But in in doing that reading, this is a whole new world for you. You would uh, laboriously, if you needed to, which was initially all the time, go to a high school textbook. Of course. And a a college textbook to make sure you eventually understood what those articles were saying. Of course, you can't you can't understand uh, medical language or 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 even biology language if it's not what you've learned. And you could get an electrical engineering degree at UCLA without ever taking a life science course. So I never took any life science courses. I was not really interested in biology. My uncle was a surgeon, and one time he invited me as a teenager to see him do a double hernia operation. As soon as the slice went across the person's uh, abdomen, I fainted and uh, (laughs) woke up after the surgery. So it was not my calling, but suddenly it was my calling. And yes, I didn't even understand what the words meant. So I went back to a high school biology textbook. I went to a college anatomy uh, book. I went to dictionaries. And I kept going back and forth and back and forth until I was able to gradually understand. So I tell people, how do you go from electrical engineering to biotechnology? Reading. You also used your daughter to help take notes, didn't you? I did. Once she was well enough to walk around a bit, she would help me and um, she would make lists for me of uh, the different articles, like who's the author of this article. She alphabetized them for me. So when I found more articles by a particular doctor, I could alphabetize the index cards in the same area. So uh, you did all of this research and you found out there was a molecule that uh, you felt held the key to this. Walk us through even that was a, a real fight uh, with a, a Glaxo welcome. Walk us through that, that, that next phase. So it's no exaggeration to say that molecules are a dime a dozen. I mean, there are, there are millions, uh, probably tens or hundreds of millions of different possible molecules. So just finding a molecule really means very little in and of itself. You have to, first of all, be able to produce that molecule to manufacture it in quantity. Many molecules are unstable, so you have to have a method of synthesis to start with precursor molecules and end up with the molecule that you want. Many molecules do not lend themselves to that type of synthesis. Secondly, you have to be able to do that synthesis without any kind of toxic uh, artifacts being left in your produced uh, medicine. You have to do all of this under what's called good manufacturing practices. Then you have to test it in animals. Most molecules are probably toxic. So you have to try to learn this with you know, rats and mice before you give it to people. And finally, when you do give it to people, you have to be able to hope it's not, it doesn't have adverse effects in humans and that it is in fact effective and it does what you want it to do. And I had to do all of this with a clock ticking all the time on on my daughter's life. So I had to do it in not double time or triple time, but like in quintuple time. 
But that's that's what I did. I gathered together a, a team of people. Some of them had worked at Glaxo Welcome. So I hired them into my own company. Other people worked at other companies. I hired them in and we all worked with a mad mission of saving my daughter's life. They all knew my daughter. And so we worked day and night to first take this molecule, gain the rights of, to use it from Glaxo, which um, was not easy either because they didn't want to outlicense anything that might someday be worth something. They finally outlicensed it to me because they thought it would never be worth anything. So you paid $25,000 to them? $25,000. Plus 10% of any future revenues, which they thought would be 10% of zero. They thought it would be 10% of zero, but later their uh, head of clinical development told me it was the best outlicensing deal that Glaxo ever made because to jump to the kind of end of the story here, the molecule was successful. It has saved my daughter. It has saved thousands of other people. It produces over a billion dollars a year in revenue. And for all that time that it was under patent, Glaxo was able to get $100 million a year that dropped right to their bottom line doing nothing at all. Wow. So you mentioned it was not enough just to get the molecule. You then had to uh, develop it, so to speak. Yes. Well, part of the reason they were willing to give it to me for $25,000, one, they didn't think it would work. Secondly, they thought that pulmonary hypertension was such an ultra-orphan condition, even if it ever could work, there would be peanuts to make from such an ultra-orphan condition. Um, the third reason is there was no known way to synthesize this molecule. I mentioned at the beginning that molecules are a dime a dozen because you have to be able to make it. And you have to be able to make it in medicinal quantities that you can use in medicine. And that's something very difficult. In our pharmaceutical industry, we call that CMC. It stands for Chemistry, Manufacturing, and Controls. And it's very, very challenging. I would say not, not one in a thousand molecules can be medicinally produced in a safe way. And so Glaxo didn't know how to do it, so they thought this molecule was useless. They had a partner that some of your listeners may remember, the company, the Upjohn Company up in uh, Michigan. They didn't know how to manufacture. I went around the country to the chemistry departments of all the major universities in the U.S., and other people I know would have given up because when I would talk to the chairman of chemistry departments and I said, I'll give you a grant to try to produce this, people would look at the molecule and say, no, this kind of a molecule can't be made. But finally, I found one guy, the chairman of the chemistry department at University of Illinois in uh, Chicago, Dr. Robert Moriarty. And he looked at it and um, he said, you know, I think I may possibly have a way to make about a gram or so of this. And if I can make a gram, maybe I'll be able to make 100 grams. But, you know, that's about it. So I'm thinking, well, 100 grams, it'll be enough to save Genesis. So he wanted uh, $100,000 to make a gram, which is a very little amount. So I gave Dr. Moriarty the 100K. And he and his team of graduate students at the uh, University of Illinois, they did successfully manufacture our molecule, which is called triprostanol. That's the name of the molecule, triprostanol. Its trade name is romodulin. And um, they ultimately were able to make uh, 100 grams. When I offered to hire everybody in the company to join our company, all those graduate students joined our company. They moved from Chicago to Silver Spring. 
Most of them are still working at the company today. And the beautiful thing, one of the most beautiful parts of this story, Steve, the most beautiful parts, my daughter Genesis is alive and well, and thousands of other people are alive and well too. That's that's the most beautiful part. But I'd say the next most beautiful part is these graduate students, the big majority of whom are uh, first-generation Americans. In other words, they moved to the U.S. to go to graduate school, in this case, chemistry at University of Illinois. When they agreed to join my company, I gave them all stock options. And I said, you guys, I know you probably don't believe me, but these options are going to be worth over a million dollars. Today, they tell me, Martin, not one of us believed you, but we wanted to help you save your daughter. All those guys are multimillionaires today, and almost all of them still work at United Therapeutics. They still come into United Therapeutics every day because they love the work they do. And uh, the numbers tell the story. At the time you began this, the population with this disease, PAH, was about two to 3,000. Today, because people now live, it's prolonged their lives, it's uh, what, a four, over 40,000? Over 40,000. It's like my subscription model for SiriusXM. You know, if you can hold on to the people who are your subscribers, in this case, if you hold on to the people who are taking your medicine because it keeps them alive, then you can keep adding more and more and uh, your business compounds. So you've uh, done a lot of development work there and uh, continue to do so. Tell us how you went from there to uh, organs, realizing that uh, lungs could be used far more effectively. So tell us how you got interested in organs and then the shocking statistics. Hardly any of them are ever used. Yes, Steve. So in these long hours in the um, library, I would begin researching not only the molecules that could help defeat pulmonary hypertension, but the disease in general. And I came across a couple of articles that said once somebody received a lung transplant, which was the only absolute cure for pulmonary hypertension, the pulmonary hypertension never recurred again in the patient after the lung transplant. And I found that very, very curious. Like, why would this disease not recur once somebody had a lung transplant? And I found myself becoming as fascinated with lung transplantation, and I would say organ transplantation in general, as I was fascinated with outer space. It seemed like another, another topic that went beyond the normal ambit of human experience, where things that were thought to be impossible suddenly screamed out, I'm possible. So I began researching organ transplantation, and I learned that not only uh, was it a cure for pulmonary hypertension and for many other diseases, such as cystic fibrosis, for example, but that um, 99% of the lungs that people donated, agreed to donate when they signed their driving license were never used. And I thought this was astonishing as a statistic. And just 1% of all of the lungs from people who die get used at all, and um, the rest of them are literally thrown away. And I thought this was a horrible waste and that there was must be something that I could do about this waste. And this was because of uh, the disease they may have, but also the lung takes on a lot of uh, liquids before you, you pass away, which helps make them unusable, I guess. Exactly. The lung is a very fragile organ. And also many people, and, and in fact, the big majority of people die in a way that they are outside of a hospital and not in a controlled condition. 
so that their lung becomes devoid of all blood before it could be explanted to donate it for somebody else. So I decided that, you know, this is something I can do something about. I can create an unlimited supply of transplantable lungs so that there will be enough for everyone. And, and, and go over how many people die each year because they don't have a donor. So it's a horrifying statistic. Yeah, it's a horrifying statistic. So there are 400,000 people in the U.S. alone who die each year of lung disease. And there are only 2,000 lung transplants done each year. So less than 1%. Even if you exclude the people who have lung cancer, it's over a quarter million people who die each year of lung disease. Only uh, 2,000 people a year get a lung transplant. The statistics are just as sad for the other organs. For example, with regard to the kidney, there are 100,000 people on dialysis, yet uh, there are only about 30,000 kidney transplants done each year. There are 200,000 people who need to be on dialysis but cannot be on dialysis and whose lives would be saved with a new kidney. Steve, there are about three quarters of a million people who die each year of heart disease, yet only 3,000 heart transplants are done a year. So I would say that in my knowledge, the biggest gap between human need and a reasonable technological ability to satisfy that need is in the realm of organ transplantation. So starting with the lungs, Yes, eventually you hope to uh, manufacture them uh, like you would an automobile. I'm being facetious, but uh, or it's routine. But you began by examining those discarded lungs and coming up with ways where they could be used. Absolutely, Steve. And you could, as you know, it's my nature to not just you know work on a moonshot, but it's my nature to work on earth shots and things that can make a difference here and now that within a five-year horizon, I can figure out a way to design a system, build it, get it approved, and use it. So we started with these huge number of lungs that are being thrown away, and we developed a technology that goes by the name of Ex Vivo Lung Perfusion Technology. The acronym is EVLP. Ex Vivo means outside of the body and perfusion means to fill it with artificial blood and gases so you can reinflate it and bring it back to life. We then established a transportation network and a data network. The transportation network were to bring lungs that were unuseful, were, were rejected for transplantation from Indiana, Texas, Florida, all over the country to bring them to a centralized place, our laboratories in Silver Spring, Maryland, where we could perfuse those lungs with special techniques and, and artificial blood to reinflate them and make them good again. Then we established a data network where we could show transplant surgeons anywhere in the country, they could see for themselves that that lung that uh, say 20 hours ago, they said they don't wanna have anything a part of, now that lung looked perfectly good to them. Well, how do you do that? You put a bronchoscope down the bronchi of this isolated lung in a glass chamber. You connect that bronchoscope to a, a digital communication system so that the surgeon can say, I want you to show me the left bronchi, show me the right bronchi. 
and we would take this bronchoscope and show them the inside of the lungs that they were clean as a baby's body. You know, no, not filled with mucus and, and filled with all kinds of things, fluids that they don't like to see. Then they want to see an x-ray. We roll in our x-ray machine. We give them a complete x-ray of the lung. We send that out, high resolution video. They can see it on their smartphone, on their iPad, on their computer, laptop, desktop. Steve, that system has proven so successful that just in the past two years, we have now saved over 150 people's lives, people who would otherwise uh, have died because they could not get a lung on the organ wait list. They got one of these, if you want to call them refurbished or remanufactured, whatever you want to call it, lungs that, that we've produced. And it's a beautiful thing. I've met these people. They told me I used to have a garage full of oxygen canisters, and now I'm back to myself. And we've published statistics that show the people that get these refurbished lungs from United Therapeutics do absolutely just as good one year after transplant and two years after transplant as the people that get a lung transplanted to them from down the corridor in the exact same hospital. That's extraordinary. And uh, usually uh, they say after six hours, you can't use a lung. You've devised methods where it can be 22 hour or more where it can still be used. That's like what we would call in law school, black letter law. When I started doing this research, everybody said, you know, six hours, that's it. The lung is useless. And uh, we changed the dogma of transplantation that now our lungs can be out of a body for 24 hours and still be successfully transplanted in somebody. So we completely changed that dogma about transplantation. Now, uh, your ambitions are there and you feel that organs from pigs Ultimately, uh, they can be used in, in, in humans. Describe the, the, this extraordinary uh, research and effort you're doing. It, it's amazing. Sure, Steve. So I, this is back going to like the more of the Ford Motor Company type of manufacturing model where we actually can make an assembly line to produce these organs on demand. Now, the, the reason for using the pig is that, first of all, uh, they have large litters. So ordinarily, a pig will have uh, a sow will have ten piglets. So you can produce a large number of organs at, at one time. A second reason is that as a fluke of nature, the pig's organs are a very close match for all of those of the human. In fact, the pig's organs are a much closer match than, say, a a primate like a baboon. Baboons are quite small; they're like around you know twenty, thirty, forty pounds whereas pigs, as you know, can grow quite large, hundreds of pounds. So the pig heart is the same shape and function as the human heart. The pig gas exchange from their lungs, it matches the same gas exchange as the uh, humans do. Another benefit of using pigs is that they are, from an evolutionary standpoint, far enough distant from humans that uh, most things that it would infect a pig will not infect a, a human. So it is safer from a standpoint of virus risk than using uh, primates. And last and most important, I think, there is a ethic that it is wrong to use animals that are potentially aware of themselves and you know have a higher level of cognitive development, such as um, great apes. I think all of us have seen the literature um, and seen the videos that these great apes of, of five different types of great apes are distant, very distant, but nevertheless cousins, you know, quite removed. 
On the other hand, the last time humans and pigs had a common ancestor was 100 million years ago. Uh, literally, dinosaurs were walking the earth. Okay, literally. So the humans and pigs are very, very distant. There's no uh, similarity of consciousness at all between humans and pigs. So these are all the reasons to, to use pigs. Now, in my PhD research that you, that you mentioned in your introductory remarks at University of London, I proposed modifying the genome of the pig because this had been just after Dolly the sheep had successfully been cloned. And I said, if we modify the genome of the pig, we can remove those genes that specify the pig to make certain proteins in their body that will be um, reacted to very aggressively by the human immune system. And this is what we have in fact done at United Therapeutics. Bit by bit over the past decade, we have created what we call the 10-gene pig. And this pig has 10 genes that have been modified that eliminate all of the acute reactions of the human immune system to the pig. So when you take a kidney from this 10-gene pig and you put it into a human, it looks to the human just like a kidney from another human person. So you don't have to worry about immunosuppressants and... Well, you, you know more so than if you got a kidney from an unrelated human person. Right. And uh, how, how is the progress on this of genetically modifying? Really, it is excellent. It is excellent, Steve. I would say in all honesty, at this point in time, the surgeons who have been doing our experiments of uh, transplanting these uh, xeno kidneys, xeno means from a pig. So these xeno kidneys into the animal models that the FDA requires before allowing human trials, the surgeons are telling me, uh, Martine, these 10-gene xenokidneys are ready to go into humans. Now, it's, it's, it's the FDA gets the last call on this, and they certainly you know, will have the last call on this. But I would say sometime, um, certainly within 24 months, we are very likely to see the beginnings of human xenokidney transplants. The other day, Steve, here's a statistic that's quite interesting. The other day, one of these um, kidney transplant surgeons, a brilliant surgeon, Dr. Uh, Jamie Locke, she reminded me, because I, I had forgotten or I never knew it, that if you are considered to have too high of a BMI, a body mass index, meaning you might be a little bit overweight, okay, that you are not allowed to go on the kidney transplant list. Now, she said that there's 100,000 people on the kidney transplant list. She told me that there are 200,000 people with that BMI who need a kidney transplant, but are not even allowed on the 100,000 person kidney transplant list. So I wanna, I wanna help all of those people. I have a cousin, uh, Cheryl Lorg over in California. She needs a kidney and, and they won't transplant her for various reasons. So I am really passionate about this project, Steve. Another area you're uh, pushing hard in is literally manufacturing a human organ. We, we might call it uh, 3D printing, but uh, using cells and uh, creating an organ, so to speak. Absolutely. So these xeno kidneys are great. And I think that they are going to save tens of thousands of lives. But they have one, uh, one further problem with them that I, I feel I can solve. And that is that you have to take immunosuppression with them. You have to take immunosuppression with transplants from unrelated people, and you have to take immunosuppression from xeno kidneys. Now, the problem with immunosuppression 
is it gives rise to uh, its own type of diseases. You probably are aware that people who have immunosuppression are at a much heightened risk of cancers, for example. So you get a kind of fibrosis in, with lung transplants that always occurs as a result of immunosuppression. So I began to think, you know, why can't we give a manufacturer an organ that the cells on it are made from the person's own DNA? After all, our bodies produce millions of cells each and every day. I mean, we don't have the same cells we had 20 years ago or, or 10 years ago or even one year ago. All of our cells and all of our organs are always turning over. Why can't we do that same thing outside of the body and then cover um, a shape of an organ with the person's own cells so that when we give that organ to the person, it looks exactly like their own body to them and they will not require any immunosuppression. So um, I've begun a large uh, program to do this. We are successful now to the extent of we've got about 50% of a manufactured lung covered with a person's own cells. Now, I realize, of course, that 50% of a lung is like half a bridge. It's no good at all. But, you know, the way an entrepreneur and an engineer thinks is if I start at 0% and, you know, four years ago I was at 10%, three years ago I was at 20%, two years ago I was at 30, 40, 50. If I keep on this pathway and I keep being flexible, adaptable, I'm going to finish the bridge. And I'm going to be able to finish this in sometime in the 2020s. I'm going to be able to manufacture organs that um, match a person's own DNA because they're covered with the person's own cells. And those would be the preferable organs for anybody to have because they would not have to take any immunosuppression with them. And uh, you believe uh, this will really be uh, evident in the early 2020s, between 2022 and 2025, the FDA will actually be starting to green light some of these? I do believe that. I do believe that. Um, we will start, the first one that I think you'll see will be the lobes of the lung. Within each of our two lungs, we have uh, two lobes in one lung and three lobes in the other lung. So we're starting by generating, uh, the fancy word for it is autologous, meaning that the uh, lungs have your own cells on them. And so we'll start with those lung lobes. Next, we'll go on to the kidney, then the liver and the heart. And I believe that the lung lobe experiments will be ready for FDA approval for us to go into man in the first half of the 2020s. And an uh, important part of all of this, of course, is the culture of a company. And uh, you uh, emphasize, as did Edison and other great uh, innovators, uh, the importance of teamwork. Uh, one person cannot do it. You got to have a team doing this. You talk about creating a village of people to create new treatments. You mentioned earlier you have to have a realistic five to 10 year goal so people can see an end game to this. Walk us how you uh, preserve that culture, including walking around and seeing small things that can lead to big things. Sure. So what you have to do is you all, I believe the management principle here is you always have to give people an amount of authority that matches the amount of responsibility that you give them. If you're giving somebody, as I have, uh, the responsibility, for example, to 3D bioprint a lung, then I have to also give that team the authority to 3D bioprint the lung. That means that if they want to engage in different types of experiments, starting, for example, with rapid 3D printing rapid lungs and proving that that's effective, purchasing more and more uh, high-tech 3D printers so that they're able to do things larger and faster, 
if they want to go ahead and scan a human lung down to the cellular level so that they have a multi-terabyte data file of exactly how to 3D print the lung, all that authority I've got to give to those people. I can't sit there and micromanage what people do. I really think of my CEO title as a chief encouragement officer uh, rather than a chief executive officer because I've got great executors all around me. That's the engineering teams who are doing these things. Another example is to keep teams of people to a reasonable size and have diverse approaches to solve the problem. I'm a big believer in the uh, Dunbar number, which is like... um, Roughly speaking, the optimum size of a human team to accomplish something is roughly like 50 to 70 people. And once you begin getting larger than that, you begin tripping over yourself in bureaucracy. And I got to get approval of this guy and that guy and this guy going up and up. So when one team of mine, the team that I have working on cell expansion, because one big part of this project is you take a punch biopsy from a patient that gives you one type of cell. And then we have to turn that cell into what's called an inducible pluripotent stem cell. So we turn it back in time to become a stem cell. By the way, that technology just was invented 20 years ago and won the Nobel Prize. So it's right in our, we live in the greatest time ever, Steve, the greatest time ever. Once you get that stem cell, I then need to re-differentiate it into an epithelial cell that lines our airways endothelial cell, that lines the blood vessels. So I have to re-differentiate that cell into these different types. Then I have to grow billions of each of those type of cells. A typical organ, a lung, a heart, a liver, a kidney has roughly speaking five, six, seven billion cells. So I have a team that does nothing but cell expansion. Their passion is to take a skin cell and turn it into an airway cell by the billions. So they're in San Diego, California. I have another team whose passion is 3D printing those cells. They're up in Manchester, New Hampshire. So I keep these different teams with 50 to 70 people per team um, doing their own thing, being their own bosses, and that keeps the culture really happy and motivated. That's terrific. Now, uh, digital immortality. You believe that uh, with uh, software, as we learn more and more about ourselves, in essence, we can uh, preserve uh, at least part of our soul. Uh, walk us through this. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Sure, Steve. So the, the concept of, of what's a soul is, is, you know, probably like a religious or a spiritual question. But I do believe that a big part of whatever that soul is, is our consciousness, um, is the way we, uh, what we remember from day to day, year to year, decade to decade, how important some memories are to us, what kind of emotional associations we have with different memories, our characteristic pattern of responding to people, what we think about people. So to the extent that all of these things are part of the soul, which I'm sure they are, Uh, Those things are all like stored in our brains as electronic circuits, but they're electronic circuits written in molecules in our what's called our connectome or all the nerve centers in our brain. So what would seem to be possible is to make a doppelganger or a copy uh, or what we call in engineering and automation today a digital twin. When people, for example, build an airplane or build a new car or build even a new building, Uh, they often make a digital twin of it first on a computer system. So what I'm trying to do is say, why don't we make a digital twin of people? 
because there is many benefits that will come from this. First of all, the relatives that they leave behind when they pass away will be able to benefit from that digital twin's knowledge and interaction in their life story. When I hear stories of my grandparents who emigrated as kids from uh, Russia and Germany and, and Europe, I am motivated. I, I, I say that's, that took so much courage for them to come to a country. They didn't even speak a word of the, of the uh, language and build themselves up. So I would love if I had a digital twin of my grandparents that I could speak to today. And I know my own grandchildren would love to speak to a digital twin of my own grandparents. So that's one thing. It's a tremendous uh, boost for what I would call intergenerational bonds and, and camaraderie. Another possibility is that this digital twin may itself be able to have some ongoing awareness of what's going on and be able to continue to develop itself. It's kind of like a, a new form of life, a, a cyber form of life. And we could debate whether that digital twin has a resemblance to the biological original or is just some kind of you know puppet or, or fancy photo album of the new person. But I would say I'll leave all those questions to the psychologists and the philosophers and the theologians. What excites me is the engineering challenge of making a digital twin of the human mind. Fantastic. And uh, you uh, made a critical decision, which you've talked about in 1994. Walk us through when you decided to do the gender reassignment and uh, what you'd gone through and uh, what you've also done for uh, rights for uh, the LGBTQ communities. Thanks, Steve. So I had felt since I was a young kid that I was I was a girl or a woman, you know, depending on the on the age that I was. I was a female, um, as they say, trapped in a male body, and it's a very odd feeling. And I certainly understand how somebody who does not have that feeling could perhaps not relate to that feeling in any way. But for the people who are transgendered, and it's estimated to be anywhere from one out of 100 to maybe you know one out of 50 people feel this transgendered sense within their soul. It's a very awkward situation because you know that everybody expects the gender that you were assigned at birth. And yet in your mind, you're absolutely certain that you are not the gender assigned at birth. So most people, they just go through their life and they repress this as much as possible because they are afraid that they will lose their job, that they'll lose their family, or that they'll even lose their life if they come out openly as a transgendered person. And in fact, Steve, unfortunately, the vast majority of transgender people, I believe, have who have come out, have lost their family, lost even their lives from coming out like that. I was extremely fortunate that I was able to keep this bottled up um, until I was in my late 30s. And at that time, I was very happily married for about 10 years. And I had four children who were wonderful and I had two great parents. And it was my, um, the only way I would express this would be to dress in the opposite gender's clothes. And so when I, I came out about this to my wife, Bina, she was 100% accepting. She said, uh, I'd never heard of something like this. It's very unusual. But Martine, I married you for your soul, not for your gender. And if this is what you have to do to be happy with yourself, 
All I want is for you to be happy with yourself. So she accepted me. My four kids accepted me. My parents accepted me. Uh, my wife's parents accepted me. The big majority of my coworkers accepted me. So I had a very easy passage, uh, Steve, for transitioning from a male Martin, which was the name I was assigned at birth, to a female Martine. Um, I just added the one little E there. And um, since that time, I do feel an obligation to help other people in the LGBTQ community as much as I can, consistent with all my other responsibilities. Um, I have had close friends who I know lose their lives as a result of transgender discrimination and, and hatred. And I hope very much that my life can be an example for other transgender people and for other straight people to accept transgenderedness. It's just part of the beautiful, multicolored nature of humanity. We are all uh, God's gift to the world, and we should love each other. Martin, thank you very, very much. You're an inspiration in so many ways, and uh, we can only cheer you on in the fantastic work you're doing. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Steve. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.